Well, good morning. How are you guys doing this beautiful, gorgeous morning? Well, as Isaac already said, my name is Josh Barlow. I'm coming from the absolute unknown territory of North Jersey. Um, I think as far as everybody's concerned, New Jersey from top to bottom is just one gigantic city. But that is, that's actually not true. There's a lot of trees in North Jersey. That's why I'm not actually saying New Jersey to you. I'm saying North Jersey. There's a, there's a clear difference. Um, but it is an absolute pleasure to be here with you guys this morning. Uh, it is good to be, uh, not just to see and to hear from Ray that there are other faithful churches all throughout uh, the world and America, but it is good to be with you guys, to sing with you guys, to open up in the Word and read and pray with you guys. So it is a joy and an honor to be here with you. Uh, just one update from Isaac's description of my life so far is that uh, we've actually added a third to our family. So as Isaac was saying, I'm married to uh, my wife, Jamie. We've been so for nine years now. Asher is five years old. Owen is three years old. They're a handful. That's why they're not here, because probably some part of your building would be on fire. And then, uh, and then we, just, we just welcomed Macy, our first girl, into our family. And so, very full house, very full uh, life. And uh, uh, yeah, afterward, I'll meet you guys in the tunnel. We can talk a little bit more about that. But we are here to go over God's Word. So, open with me to 1 John chapter 5, 1 through 5. Um, we'll be just looking at these few verses for our time. Um, what I like to do is I like to read the passage that we'll be looking through in full, and then I'll take some time to pray, and then we will dive right in. So 1 John 5, 1-5 says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of Him. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey His commands. For this is what the love for God is, to keep his commands. And his commands are not a burden, because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do indeed praise your name. Praise your name for things that we don't even know you're doing in our midst. Father, we thank you for this gorgeous day. We thank you for the gorgeous collection of your body here, Christ Church. Lord, we thank you for your gathering of your people all throughout the world today as they open up your word and study it. Father, I pray just in a humble sense, Father, that you would use the power of the Spirit to mark us with a life that mirrors Jesus's life. Use this time in your word and use the worship we've already sung and the reading from the Psalms that we've already read aloud together, our tithes and our givings. Use all of this to mature our faith in you, to spread your kingdom throughout this area and far beyond. Father, continue to graciously use us as we humbly pursue you and follow your ways. Let this passage today challenge our hearts, challenge our lifestyle, challenge the things that we believe in, even challenge our understanding of who you are. And at the same time, Father, help this passage through the work of your Spirit in my life and the lives of us all gathered here. Father, use it to 
assure us that you are powerful, that you are sovereign, Father, that you love us. And because of those things, we have the gift, we have the privilege to glorify you in everything that we do, everywhere that we go. So, Father, we pray these things humbly. Father, do these things quickly by the power of your Spirit. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I drove down Market Street to get here. Uh, don't ask me where that is from here because I don't know. But I drove down Market Street to get here, and one of the things that was, and it was pitch black, it was raining, and one of the things that was still so vibrant about that street was that the signs, right, all these signs blaring their light out at me as I drove. No matter how hard it was raining last night, how pitch black it could have been, right, there was one thing I knew. There was food on the street, right? That is a good thing. Advertising, it's... I don't know why I'm talking about advertising here on a Sunday morning, but advertising, it's this fantastic thing that we, we see very often, right? Commercials, streetlights, right? all these, these things. But yeah, we, we don't come to realize just how scientific advertising is. The, the billions of dollars poured into advertising just to make you have one second thought that, man, this could be for me, right? I was looking at these stats uh, earlier this week, and advertisers, all their billions of dollars and everything like that, say that you need to hear something, not even see it, hear something seven times before you may even believe that a product is for you. Seven times, right? That's why all these commercials blare the phone number out at you. It seems like more than seven times. Right? That's why there's always more than seven people in a commercial. I don't know if you guys have ever realized that. Right? You need to see seven happy people in a commercial before you realize that that quad or that new bank or whatever it is will make you just as happy as these seven paid professionals. Right? Seven times. We're, we're jumping into 1 John at the end. So what I would encourage you to do after this, gather as a family, gather with close friends, whatever it might be, just read the whole book of 1 John out loud together, right? And you'll see that the passage we're going over today really is a summary of what John has been getting at the entire book, all five chapters. And really what John is doing is he is serving as an advertiser. The things that we're going to be going over today have been listed, have been spelled out, have been called to us to follow and obey and believe Way, way more than seven times. First John is advertising what the, what the basic Christian life looks like. And not just back in John's day, but for us today. And it boils down to three major things. Three major things that First John, and John as he writes, continually rolls over and looks at even the minutia of it, explaining what the what the, uh, what the challenges to it are, but also what the blessings are. And those three things are belief, love, and obedience. The three characteristics of the Christian life. Belief, love, and obedience. So we're going to go over those things today, of course, and you already heard those as I was reading the passage. But we've got to ask a question even before we get into that. Why? Why is John so frequently in just five short chapters going over belief, love, and obedience so much. There's two reasons, and they're both explicit here. You can read about them in chapter 3, but the first is this. 
is that when belief, love, and obedience are the marks of a life, God-glorifying belief, God-glorifying love, God-glorifying obedience, then that is the assurance that God has saved them. And we need assurance today. We need assurance today. We need John to advertise the truth of God's saving work in us way more than seven times. But we need to be assured that God's power has saved us. And that he is still working in us. In that sense, belief, love, and obedience really operate as the evidence that God has changed our hearts, has brought us into his family. But the second one is, this, is a different side of the same coin, though, and it's that we should never neglect these things. We'll get into some common temptations about maybe some ways or some reasons why we would neglect these three foundational pieces of the Christian life, but John repeats these things so that we would never, ever forget them. There never should be a time when a Christian should say to themselves, what am I supposed to do in this moment? Right? We should always circle back to these three things, that we should believe in that moment, Love in that moment and obey in that moment. If you guys are taking notes, I'll give you the big idea here. It's really simple this morning, but it's simply that the Christian life consists of belief, love, and obedience. Belief, love, and obedience. So look with me for this insurance, this assurance of salvation, and also this challenge to not neglect the Christian life that God has given us. We look at John chapter 5, verse 1 here. It says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Let's just take a moment to look at this. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. Two things I want to pull out of here. Our, our American eyes read this, and what do we focus on? We focus on everyone who believes. So all of a sudden, we're thinking to ourselves, okay, boom, I'm right here. I'm in this passage right? This is about me. I am the one who has believed that Jesus is the Christ, right? Actually, the emphasis of this first phrase here, the first phrase of his summary of the book, is that God has born people into new life, right? The emphasis here isn't us who have believed. It is actually God who has, as this verse tells us, made us believe. John here is showing us that whatever we're going to be learning about belief, love, and obedience, it all comes from God. It all comes from His power, His saving work in our lives. He emphasizes God here. He emphasizes God's regeneration of our souls. We were even reading it uh, earlier, John chapter 1, verse 3, right? God has given us the right to become children of God. You think about God's saving work, the power that he has even over his enemies, you and I, when we choose to sin, we choose to be God's enemy. He is still sovereign and powerful to change us from an enemy to a son or daughter. Think about the other things that God does for us when he regenerates us. He frees us from the, from the bindings of sin to release us into a life of faithfulness. He saves us from the death that we deserve to a life of life, a life of faithfulness, a life of glorifying God instead of glorifying ourselves, right? And so this new life, this life that God has brought to us, that we have been born through God's work of the gospel to this new family, this new life, this new order of life, right? 
that is going to result in three major things for us. And spoiler alert, it's belief, love, and obedience. Look back at the beginning of verse 1 here. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. The first result of God's saving work in our lives is to believe God. It is the action. It is the ascription to know personally and to trust that God is who he says he is. God's saving work in you and me produces belief in God. And belief in God, and especially the way that our culture tends to use that word, kind of gets muddied in our minds now. What does it mean to believe God? Very helpful, um, even a book such as Systematic Theology, right, would list out what it looks like to believe God. It's to know Him personally, to know Him personally, not to have an intellectual framework for who God is, not to be able to teach Sunday school and say, these are the top 10 things you need to know about God, but to have a personal relationship with Him, to understand that those characteristics and qualities of who God is actually have meaning and weight in your life specifically. It's not just to know those things, but it's to actually start to filter all that we see, all that we do, right, through who God is. To look at the world around us, understand that God is sovereign. To look at other people and understand that we are to love them, right? Instead of love ourselves through them. We need to know God personally. But also to believe His Word. God makes these amazing promises all throughout His Word. And it's just our hearts. It's just those small little thoughts in us that say, it's just, it might be true for them or this guy or whatever, but it's not true for me. There's times where we neglect that belief in who God says He is and what He is doing in us. Believers know God, they believe His Word, but they also depend on Him. They depend on Him. When things get rough and when things get good, there is, a, there is an overall life leaning on who God is because we know who He is, we believe what He says about Himself. And then finally, knowing, believing, depending, committing. Ultimately, a belief in God will result in the following of His commands. The following of His commands. What He tells us to do, we believe is good. We depend on Him in order to do it. And then we go out and we make the decision to commit to His ways. So the first product of God's saving work in us is belief. But look next here. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. Probably the most well-known characteristic of 1 John between belief, love, and obedience is all the commands to love one another. And again, we see it being summarized here, right? The person who loves the Father, the one who believes on him, the one who understands Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of their soul, turns that love that they've received from the Father and then goes out and loves others. The second product of God's saving work in you is a love for others. 1 John 4.19 sums this up so well. It just says, we love because he first loved us. There's no other source that a person can drum up an others-centered love, a true, genuine, others-centered love, other than receiving the love that God has for us. The love of God that transitions us from an enemy to a family member. I like how John here puts the one who loves the Father. 
We get that familial language there. It's no longer God, but He becomes our Father. And so we look at others as brothers and sisters, understanding that they are part of the family as well for, for the believers. Right? The one who has been born of God then goes and loves the others who are born of God. The temptation here, of course, is to love ourselves by loving others. I'll do this good thing. I'll do this nice thing. I'll do the thing that they told me to do so that I receive the glory. That's not the mark of the Christian. The mark of the Christian is an others-centered, self-sacrificing love. Believers willingly give up what they have in order to meet the needs of those around them because that's what God did for us. We need to look at our money. We need to look at our time. We even need to look at some of those open-hand, personal conviction issues that we have and say, okay, I know that I need to love others. I need to meet their needs with all that God has entrusted me with. So believers willingly give up what is rightfully theirs for the good of others. So we saw that belief is the first product. Now love for others is the second product of God's saving work. And here's the third in verses 2 and 3. This is how we know that we love God's children when we love God and obey his commands. For this is the love for, or I'm sorry, for this is what love for God is to keep his commands. God's saving work in us produces obedience to God. Believers love God by obeying his commands. This makes absolute total sense to us. If you're a parent, you know that your child loves you when you ask them to do something, and what do they say? Yes, mom, yes, dad, I will do that. And then they actually go and do it, right? It's a foreign concept to children, I know. But every once in a while, they do this. And what do you feel in that moment? You say, I feel loved. I feel loved. I didn't have to track down my kid in some room where the garbage can is not in and tell them once again for the 90th time, please take the garbage out, right? You feel loved in that instant. It's the same as, same as true, for our relationship with God. We show God that we love Him, we reciprocate that love back to Him by willingly obeying Him for His glory, not our own. So the believer loves God by obeying His commands. But there's another part here. This is how we know that we love God's children. So this is how we know that we love other believers. How? By loving God and obeying His commands. Now this is a little foreign to us. Right? We don't usually go to somebody and say, hey, I'm going to love you really well by prioritizing this person and doing everything that they say. All right? This is not how marriages work, by the way. Right? I don't tell Jamie, my wife, hey, I love you very much by prioritizing this person more than you and whatever they tell me, even though you might have told me something else, I'm going to do what they say. Right? Everybody's cringing at this moment because that's not how marriage works. But yet the Christian faith works that way. He makes it so clear here that we love others by obeying God. We love others by loving God and obeying Him. And even though it seems a little foreign, the entire scope of the Bible's account of God's love for us and our love for others is totally based in love for God. You think about the Trinity itself, even before creation came around, right? The Trinity is self-sufficient in its love for itself. There's nothing to be taken away from that love that can be taken away from that love. There's nothing to add to that love. Every person of the Godhead loves the other part of the Godhead perfectly, completely. 
Then we see in the Garden of Eden, after the triune God produces creation, we read about Adam and Eve, and they are called not to love each other first, but they're called to love God first. Ephesians 5, 25-35, that amazing account of what love looks like right for the, for married couple. Right? That's what Garden of Eden was supposed to look like, that love for God and that love for others. But as God continues to develop, even after the fall, what a right relationship with him looks like, you get the Ten Commandments. First four are what a relationship with God looks like, how to prioritize him first, how to love him most, how to obey his commands, so on and so forth. And then five through ten after that are about what the relationship looks like with others around. Right? You can't have the last six commands without the first four commands. In Deuteronomy 6, talking about what it looks like to love God with an entire mind, heart, soul, strength. But then after that, that's the entire center of the law. But then after that, what it looks like to live that out in the congregation of God's people. Jesus himself uh, echoes this in Matthew 22, 37 through 40, right? Where he says the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your mind, with all of your heart, with all of your soul, right? And again, with the echo of Deuteronomy, all of your strength, but the second is like it. Love others as you love yourself. The Bible makes it clear here that there's absolutely no way for any of us to actually love those around us if we do not know the love of God and have received the love of God. This is absolutely proven to us even in right before our passage here in 1 John 4.10, where it says, love consists in this. I'm sorry, verse 9. God's love was revealed among us in this way, that God sent His one and only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. Love consists in this. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be an atoning sacrifice for our sin. Even... God's love for us is shown, and this might sound weird, but is shown in God's love for us. God can love us because Jesus and the rest of the Trinity loves itself. We see that right here in verse 10, right? Love consists in that, that we loved God. It's not a reciprocal love. It wasn't that God was waiting for us to love him, and then he's like, okay, finally they love me. Now I can go save them. In fact, it was that he loved us and sent his son, and Jesus was obedient Jesus loved us. Now we can be atoned. Now we can be made one with God. Jesus humbly obeyed the Father in order to love us and save us. You can sum it up this way. We love others best when we love God most. We love others best when we love God most. So we may think to ourselves, okay, so I need to love God in order to love others absolutely true. we can pray about that in a moment. But we need to understand that our love for God is based in obeying Him. It's based in that belief. Again, understanding what He has done for us and obeying Him. So, question. Those are the three, right? Those are the three. Belief, love, and obedience. So, we've got to ask the question this morning. Is your life marked by these three core tenets of the Christian faith? Is your life marked by a belief, a trust, a dependence, a commitment to God's ways? Is your life marked by this 
godly love, this self-sacrificing, this, this love that hunts out the needs that other people have and willingly, sacrificially going out of the way to spend whatever resource we may have in order to meet that need in someone else? Are we marked by this love? Are we marked by this obedience? Not only this love for God, but then the obedience, right? The, the worship of God, the glorifying of God by obeying His commands. You think about some of the areas that you might be in at this moment, right? Is your life marked by belief, love, and obedience at work around maybe unbelieving coworkers? Is your life marked by these things in school when you are surrounded by the pressures of getting all the assignments done on time without cheating? Is your life like this at church? We'll get into this in a moment, but we need to think about it now. We need to prepare our hearts to come and exercise. If there's ever going to be a place where we need to exercise these three things the most, it should be within God's body. Right? We're doing this at church, in those relationships that we have at church. What about at home? Fathers, are your lives marked by a belief, trust, dependence, commitment to God's ways at home? Fathers, are you the first to sacrifice in order to make sure that the family and in the home is centered on who God is? Are you meeting the needs the way that you should? Finally, at home, obedience. Right? Fathers, are you the first to say we need to obey God in this? Just in general, kids, wives, whatever it might be, even if you're single, alone, right? Belief, love, and obedience. Are those your markers at home? What about friends and family? Right. This is dangerous territory, right? We have the gift of believing family and believing friends, and of course, it's much easier in a sense, especially after a long time of being near them, to obey with them and to love them and to uh, go over who God is and encourage each other to continue to trust in who God is. But there's also the difficulty. We might have family and friends that do not ascribe to God. And they might actually be against God. They might be against your beliefs. So how are you doing with that? When those closest to you reject the most important thing about you, do you still react with belief, love, and obedience? And then finally, the last area I have here is just when you're all by yourself. You know, the, the, the heaviest temptations come when, we, when we're isolated, when we're away from other people, right? So when, even when you're all by yourself, with all the free time you could ever wish, you still believe in God, loving Him, and obeying His ways. But there's also great encouragement here for us as well, right? There's great encouragement for us here because as... John says through and through, you can even look at 3.24, right? It says the one who keeps his commands remains in him. We have this great assurance that the Christian who is doing these things for God's glory has this great assurance that they are saved, that God has, in fact, worked out his salvation power in that person. This is the evidence to God's work in their lives. And why is this an encouragement? This is an encouragement because as humans, as broken, sinful people, we struggle with certain things that would make us question whether God has actually given us new life, if we're actually part of God's 
family. You can think about failure when it just comes time to obey God, and we literally think to ourselves, I know what God wants me to do here, yet I'm going to choose the other side of the road and fail in my Christian life. What's the next thing that happens in our hearts and minds? Satan comes in and says, look what you just did. Look what you just did, and you call yourself a Christian. The one who is marked by belief, love, and obedience and answer back, I may have just done that, and I will repent of that, of course, but I also know that God is working in me for salvation. You think about when other people come up to you and critique you, it might not just be an internal thing, it might be an external thing. When people come up to you and say, I just saw what you did, I just heard what you said, you just messed up that part of your sermon, please don't do that to me, right? And, and you get all this feedback on your Christian life, whose feedback is most important, though? It's God's feedback. The one that we're called to be faithful and to love and obey, he's the one who has worked in us before even the foundations of the earth. He's the one who has worked in us salvation for his glory. In the same way we can look at doubt and accusation, whether it's internal or external. Right? The believer can rest assured that God has powerfully rescued them from sin, death, and Satan because the fruit of their life is belief, love, and obedience. So these, these three things provide assurance. But what these three things don't provide is salvation itself. So let me just take a moment here and just talk to those who may have been spending their life so far relying on their belief on God, relying on their love for others, relying on their obedience for God, not for assurance, not to look at it as evidence of God's saving work in them, but they've been looking at that to save them. God is the only one who can save. So if there is in your heart this desire to earn salvation by performing the Christian life, then that is not the assurance of salvation. That is the assurance that you are trying to do God's work for him. And that's impossible. You look at back at verse 9 and 10 here, right? It is God who loved us. It is him who sent his son. And Jesus became our atoning sacrifice. Nowhere in there does it say that we earned it, we can earn it, or we should earn it. The Christian life, these three things are meant as an assurance to us. They are not meant for our credit card to tell God, I've earned up enough credit for the salvation, for that powerful work to enter into your family. So here you go, and thank you very much. That's not it. That's self-glorifying action. Turn to God. Turn to God. I pray that the Holy Spirit works in your heart to understand that these three things are great, but they do not earn salvation. Now, thinking about all this, thinking about the marks of belief, love, and obedience at work, at church, all in between, all the failures and critique, accusations, we can come to one simple conclusion. This is not easy. This is not easy, right? Thank God for the next few verses. Continue with me in verse 3 here. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. They are not a burden. Praise God. Belief, love, and obedience are not a burden. Loving God is not a burden. Loving others, not a burden. Believing on who God is, following his commands and his promises, not a burden. How can this ever be so? 
How could this ever be so? Because if you're like me, up until just one verse ago, my mind is swirling with all the failure, all the accusation, all the critique about how I'm not doing these things perfectly. How could this be so that it's not a burden? Verse 4. Because everyone who has been born of God conquers the world. What's John talking about here? Saying those who have had God's power work in them for salvation have a fourth result. It's not a duty, it's more of a characteristic, right? The characteristic is that they have victory over the world. So God's saving work in you and in me produces victory over the world. What does the world mean here? John, throughout his book, is talking about the world over and over again as the opposition to loving God, loving others, and following God's ways. It's any opposition to God and his ways, pretty much. And so the, the believer has this special quality about them that they have conquered any opposition to who God is, any, uh, any sort of divergence from obeying him. And so we have this victory over sin and the world. And it's for good measure. Why is it for good measure? Look at the rest of verse 4 and 5. This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. Who is the one who conquers the world, but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? So God's commands aren't a burden because those born of God have this victory over the world, over sin, over Satan, over all the common trappings of the fleshly life by faith in their victorious Savior. How do we know Jesus is victorious? We know Jesus is victorious is because he not only died, to take the wrath from God that we deserve, but he rose again. And in that moment, when Jesus rose from the dead, Satan's greatest weapon against Jesus, you or I, which is death, was defeated. And now, we as believers have this gift given to us. Jesus' victory is shown in his resurrection, the triumph, and that triumph over the grave is now passed to you and to me. For those who have had the saving work of God done in them by God's hand, we now live in a victorious life. And that means that believing, loving, and obeying aren't easy, but they are possible. This is why John incorporates this world-conquering comment here in the summary of his book. For the first reason is that Jesus' victory encourages us not to neglect the Christian life. Our minds swirl with reasons why we should not believe God at his word, why that person doesn't deserve the love that I know I should give them, and yet this person just seems so appealing. If only I could get that person's attention. Our minds swirl with reasons not to obey God and his direct commands. We are tempted day in and day out to neglect what God has told us about himself and about others and about his ways But in victory, God's victory given to God's family, we can actually make the decision to maintain faithfulness. We can make the decision to exercise faithfulness to God and to his ways. This is an encouragement. If the world stands as any uh, opponent to God and his ways, then again, we need to examine the exterior and the interior. What are some exterior threats that come upon you that make you think to yourself, believing, loving, and obeying in this moment is not worth it? Maybe those accusations from other people again. 
Maybe it's just that wet blanket of the culture around us. We hear more news against Christian faith, true Christian faith, than we hear news and encouragement toward Christian faith. The exterior world and all of its threats, all of its oppositions, it's been conquered by Jesus. And so when we go out, we can maintain what God calls us to. We can remain faithful to believing Him. We can remain faithful to loving others. We can remain faithful to believing God. But then there's also the interior threat. We choose. We need to be real about this. We choose not to follow God and His ways. Sin gets the upper hand. We decide in short moments, and we decide for weeks on end not to do what God has told us to do. And that's the interior threat. But yet, Jesus conquered our interior brokenness as well. That sin and death that we earn, the sin and death that we give into willingly at times, Jesus, when he rose from the dead, he conquered it. He didn't just conquer sin and Satan as exterior threats, but he conquered the death that we love inside of us. He frees us from the shackle of sin and death, and he frees us into a life of faithfulness, a blessed life where we're able to follow him. So Jesus conquers the exterior threat and the interior threat, yet it just might come to the point where you'd be honest this morning and say, I'm, I'm neglecting one, two, or three of these things. I know that the Lord has rescued me. I know that my life is for God's glory. But when I look at today, when I look at the past week, when I look at the last month or last year or whatever it might be, I have not been giving myself over to these three character traits of the Christian life. What do I do then? But I encourage you, excuse me, read your Bible. Get to know better the God who it is that you are serving, the God who has rescued you from sin and death into his family. Get to know your Father better, the one who has loved you first. Pray. Pray through repentance of your neglect of that, but pray for an increase in that. Because we still remain broken at this time and we're waiting for uh, God's remaking of us in the new heavens and the new earth when we'll be able to live with him in perfection for all of eternity, we are stuck. We're just stuck. We're stuck in this, in this weird moment where we still give in to sin and yet we know the reality of God's victory for us. Confess the times that you give in to sin and pray for an increase of faith that you might be more faithful in these coming up. I'd also encourage you guys to seek out discipleship. This is one of the most beneficial things that you can do. Find somebody who is older than you, has more gray hair than you, whatever it is, right? And tell them, be honest with them up front. I am struggling to love others the way that God is loving me. Please help me. Find somebody, look around in the church, find somebody that you say, this person, they, got, they know how to love other people. Their house is always open. There's an endless amount of food in their car, in their purse, whatever it is. They're always ready to feed somebody, right? Find the people that you can see have in abundance what you lack and approach them and say, I need help. I need help to know God more. I need help to figure out how I can actually do this. So seek out discipleship. And then lastly, I say rejoice. Rejoice in the atonement. All these things, believing, loving, obeying, they're all wrapped up in Christ's work for us. And so we, as the start 
of our Christian life, that's marked by praise to God. We need to continue that life by praising, by thanking God for what he's done through Jesus. So why does John incorporate this world conquering into his summary of the, of the book? It's first because Jesus' victory encourages us not to neglect the Christian life, but then it's also so that our churches and Christ church here this morning would also live in believing, loving, and obeying. Jesus' victory is given to his family, and we are his family. And I was saying earlier, if there should be a spot, like a geographical spot on earth where God's love and belief in him and obedience to him is at peak performance, it's here. And I just don't mean in the room. I just mean as you guys gather here, as you guys go out, as you guys have relationships that you have as a church together, serving throughout the week, going to people's houses, fellowshipping over a meal, whatever it might be, that that should be the peak of believing, loving, and obeying. Jesus' victory is given to his family, the church. Look at verse 4. Go back just one verse. It says, This is the victory that has conquered the world, our faith. This isn't that our faith is actually what puts us up and over sin and Satan and death. Again, we're looking at God's power here, but it's our faith that links us to the victorious one. It's our faith as a church that helps us to promote the Christian life that God calls us to. You kind of think of it as a banner, right? You guys have a street sign outside. That's how I found it on my ninth pass by, right? So you guys have these signs outside. Again, advertising, right? What, what is the banner over Christ's church? What is it? What is your church marked by? First John encourages you to have your church be marked by that believing of God, the loving of others, the obeying of God's ways. I love it. Once again, back to verse 5. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. There's just an extra dosage here, a call to love those who have also chosen to love God. We believe on God together. We trust and depend. We worship together. We weep together. We celebrate together. We share meals together. We encourage each other to know God more. We believe on God together. We love each other well, and we love God. We must have an eye to meet the needs of others by sacrifice. I know the delegation is a very important thing in our busy, busy world, being able to identify things that you need to handle or there's something else that somebody else can do, but when it comes to Christian love, there is no delegation. There is no passing it off. There is no part where we say, okay, I understand the need, but I think this guy can help you a little bit better. You might be able to facilitate that, but ultimately, each one of us is called to love each other and to do that sacrificially, not to dump it off onto somebody else, but to do it so that there's cost. There's cost involved. Sacrificially meet others' needs, and then we obey together. We don't neglect God's commands together. I was so appreciative of the brother's prayer this morning about us as a church, right? Christ's church being built up in the Christian duties together. It's such a blessing to obey God's commands together. Faithful, God-honoring churches believe together, they love together, and they obey together. And we're thankful for that because we can do that through Christ's victory. So 1 John as a whole calls us to this 
personal and corporate lifestyle. Again, I encourage you guys to read the book out loud, whether it's just yourself or with your family or friends, whatever it might be. Read the book aloud. It'll probably take you 10 minutes to do it. But just underline, circle all the times that the book calls you to believe and love and obey. And understand that that's a personal call for every Christian. Understand it's also your corporate call as a church. And be thankful that Jesus has provided all we need in order to fulfill those things. Right? He's provided all that we need for this life and this faithfulness. And he does so for his glory that we might glorify him personally and as a church as we live out a lifestyle of believing him, loving him, and obeying him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you once again for your work on the cross and through resurrection, Father, for our behalf. We praise you, Lord, that you've done this not in a mysterious way, not in a way where we have to hunt it down and figure it out and put the pieces together on our own, but, Father, you give us passages such as 1 John, Lord, that tell us explicitly that this is your work for your glory on our behalf. When I pray that as a church gathered together, Father, that Christ Church would endeavor well to believe you, to love others, to love others by, by loving you and obeying your commands. I ask, Father, that you would grow this church in those things, grow this church in number, grow this church in desire to love you and love others more. Lord, a dependence on you. We ask, Father, that you would do this quickly once again. And, Father, we ask that you would do this through the power of your Spirit. Father, I, I again ask that you do this in evident ways so that we can see your work at hand. We pray, Father, for all these things in Jesus' great name. Amen.